Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Derek Gilbert looks at the coming war between Christians, and James Collins reveals an ancient mystery. I'm excited to report that with your help, we have reached over 88% of our Studio 50 goal. Just under 12% left to fully update all of our recording studio equipment and software. Would you please consider a gift today to the Studio 50 Project? We need to finish our Studio 50 Project this week, and we can with your help. Call 1-800-652-1144 and show your support for Studio 50. That's 1-800-652-1144. If you'd like, you can give online. Simply visit swrc.com. Thank you. Thank you for your support of Studio 50 and Watchmen on the Wall. As the world races toward its momentous end times encounter between good and evil, a deepening antagonism is developing worldwide against conservative Christians. Author Derek Gilbert is here today to look at the coming war between Christian versus Christian. Jesus spoke about wars and rumors of war. War seems to be one of the realities of human history. Now, I have a book in my hand titled, Blood on the Altar, The Coming War Between Christians versus Christian. The book is published by Defender. I'm one of the contributing authors and also Derek Gilbert, who is on the phone with me. Derek, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Larry, it's always an honor. Thank you for having me. Well, this volume that we're talking about is 11 chapters. Some of the contributors are Tom Horn, Terry James, Chuck Missler, Paul McGuire, and others. And I've been going through the book. It's a tremendous book. I want to ask you about your chapter. It's titled Dominionism's Political Divide. So what is dominionism, and how is it producing a political divide? Well, dominionism is a new theology that really grew out of the latter rain movement of the 1940s and early 1950s. Some of the charismatic evangelists of that period, like Franklin Hall and William Branham, really developed a new eschatology, a new end times theology for Christianity, which is a lot more, I guess, optimistic would be the word, than what we read in the Bible. And when we read the Bible, we understand that what's coming in the end times is going to be not very pleasant for those who are here on earth. But this new teaching and this outgrowth called Dominion Theology teaches that Christians are bound and have a moral obligation to take over the world for Jesus. And at its most extreme, it's a belief that Christians must take over the world before Jesus Christ can return. So would you categorize Dominionism as heresy? I think at its most extreme, yes. Now, it's difficult to pin the theology of Dominionism down, because there's no central governing body issuing doctrine on this. It's sort of like trying to nail jello to the wall. (laughs) But at its most extreme, it encourages Christians who are among the most patriotic of Americans to emphasize politics over the Great Commission. Right. In other words, making America great again instead of fulfilling the Great Commission. And It's understandable when we look at what's happening in the world around us that we would like to get our hands on the levers of power so that we can enforce, using the power of government, the morality that we read in the Bible. But Jesus taught the disciples to go and preach the gospel, 
And if those in the villages they visited would not listen to them to shake the dust from their sandals as a reproach and move on, it's a real grassroots movement. That's what Jesus taught his disciples. He did not say, go forth and form political action committees. Right. Amen. Well, you talk about the conflation of God and country and how it has spawned an aberrant vision of a future global theocracy. And I think what you've just said really describes it very, very well. Now, I want to quote you. You say, at best, dominionism is a distraction from the Great Commission. At worst, it is a heretical rewrite of prophecy that puts the responsibility for defeating the enemies of God in human hands. And we know that the enemies of God will be defeated, but not by us. And I think that's a very perceptive observation on your point. It is. And this is not to say that we as Christians should be passive participants in the culture around us. It's just we need to keep things in the proper order. When we talk about God and country, we need to keep them in that order and not put country first. We need to remember as Christians we are citizens of a kingdom, and we're ambassadors for our king. And our responsibility is to go forth and represent that kingdom to the best of our ability. In the words of Peter, you know, sharing the hope that we have with gentleness and respect so that no one can hold us in reproach or that we don't bring condemnation onto the gospel, so that we don't make ourselves stumbling blocks between a world that needs salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's hard to do when we see radical activists for this or that worldview or lifestyle choice cursing us and cursing the king that we stand for. But we need to remember they're not angry at us, they're angry at him. And they are in bondage without realizing it. Mm. They are slaves the principalities and powers against whom we wrestle, according to Paul. Our contest is not with them. It's with the principalities and powers, these spiritual entities, these spirit beings, who are using them as human shields in a very real sense. That is our mission, and that is something we cannot accomplish through the political process. So what do you think is the relationship between New Testament evangelism and political activism? Of course, the reason I ask this question is because during the Reformation, the magisterial reformers believed that the secular authorities, the government, the city-state, Calvin's consistory should be helping the church in bringing about reform. Now, that's an extreme view, but what about Christians voting, for example? I mean, we see strange things happening in government, and so many times, for example, the ease with which you can get marijuana in Oklahoma. Now, that got passed in a conservative state, basically because many of the conservatives didn't come out and vote, and all the ones who wanted marijuana, they voted like crazy. So should we vote? Is that important? Should we know what's going on in the political arena? Yeah, that is a real interesting question and one that we wrestle with. I remember back in 2016, November of 2016, right after the election, we had a special program on Skywatch TV where we tried to process what had just happened with Donald Trump's surprise victory. And our consensus was that we needed to look at this as a reprieve to continue doing what we're supposed to do, which is share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ with a darkening world, but not to sit back and say, okay, well, we've got our guy in the White House, so now we can sit back and relax. And I know that there are quite a few Christians who've had difficulty voting for Donald Trump or refused to because of his past and his personality. And I understand that. What we need to remember is that when we vote, we are not voting for 
the theologian in chief when we're voting <laughs> right. for the president. We are to vote based on our values, of course, and that can make it very difficult. I don't see it being an easy road for any true Christian to succeed at the highest levels of politics. It's like the old joke, what do you get when you cross politics and religion? You get politics. So (laughs) the framers of the Constitution wanted to keep politics and religion, church and state, separate, not to protect the state from the church, but to protect the church from the state. Mm. The early colonists in Massachusetts very wisely forbid pastors from participating in the political process, not because they didn't want the gospel in their daily lives. It's because they believed, and I think we've kind of lost this in the modern world, they believed that a pastor's time was so important, studying the Word of God and then preaching and teaching the congregation. They didn't want them distracted by the mundane affairs of civil government. Right. And today we see men and women bear the title of reverend very openly and actively engaging in the political process. And I just have to wonder when we see that, where are their priorities? Well, now, when we speak about groups like the New Apostolic Reformation, I believe they're post-millennial in their eschatology. But biblically speaking, there will be no manifest kingdom on earth unless the king has returned. So that's one of the distinctives of premillennialism. Christ will come before the millennium because he's the king. And when the king is present on the earth— we will have the kingdom age. Would you make that distinction between post-millennialism and pre-millennialism? Absolutely. If we're looking at a post-millennial reality, then again, we're putting the emphasis for setting up the kingdom of God on earth in human hands, and that's not what Scripture tells us. And again, at its most extreme, this view is based on a misreading of Psalm 110, verse 1, mm. which reads, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then taking that and saying, okay, look at the world around us. It's clear that the enemies of God have not yet been defeated, but that's not what we read in the New Testament. There are several places in the New Testament where we read that the enemies of God, the enemies of Jesus Christ, have already been made his footstool. They've been defeated, but their final subjugation and punishment will not happen until he returns at the head of the heavenly host. So... We cannot take upon ourselves that which God has said he will do. The final defeat of the enemies, sin, death, Satan, the Antichrist, that all happens when Jesus returns, our Messiah returns at the head of that heavenly host. Well, Derek Gilbert and I are visiting, talking about the book, Blood on the Altar, The Coming War Between Christian versus Christian. Contributing authors, Gary Stearman, Chuck Missler, Chris Putnam, Michael Lake, Sharon Gilbert, Derek Gilbert, Larry Spargimino, Paul McGuire, Douglas Krieger, Douglas Woodward, and Terry James. It's a very helpful book written by experts in their respective fields. Our toll-free number, 1-800-652-1144. The title of the book, Blood on the Altar. Well, Derek, my chapter, I deal with the emergent church and the religion of environmentalism. As you well know, there have been many credential scientists who urged the United States government to reject the global warming agreement that was written in Kyoto, Japan in 1997. But of course, Al Gore, in his 2006 Oscar-winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, presented global warming, aka climate change, as an imminent threat 
to the planet. I'm chuckling now because just a few months ago, John Kerry was asked about Vladimir Putin and the war in Ukraine. And Mr. Kerry said this, as long as Mr. Putin is on track with climate change, we're okay. Well, Mr. Putin seems to be moving in the direction of creating a rise in temperature in NATO nations and the amount of several million degrees. It's amazing. So how do the dominionists view modern warfare? Do they still see mankind establishing the kingdom of God on earth before Jesus returns, or are they singing a different song? There's a belief among some in the new apostolic reformation that there are seven cultural mountains that must Mm. be subdued by Christians in the last days. And these mountains have been identified as the economy, government, family, spirituality or religion, education, media, and arts and entertainment. And there's no question that if Christians were to take control of those aspects of human civilization, we would have a much better world, but that was not the approach that Jesus left us with. Now, there are some in this movement that have replaced one of those mountains, so-called mountains, like arts and entertainment, I believe, replaced with military. That is just a little bit disturbing, uh, especially (laughs) given the teaching by some in this movement. And again, I have to use that phrase because there is no central doctrine to this belief that we have to take over the world, but this idea that God is raising up Joel's army, and this is based on a misreading of Joel chapter 2 and those disturbing soldiers that are described by the prophet Joel in the chapter 2 of his book. When you read that very carefully, you see that these super soldiers, if you will, in Joel's army are fighting for the wrong team and that God eventually destroys them. But again, a lot of what passes for theology in this outgrowth of the latter rain movement is based on a misreading of prophecy, allegorizing, and certain aspects of eschatology, end times prophecy, in order to come up with this new theology about what is to come that sounds good, because again, in our natural selves, our flesh, yeah, we want to take over the world, because we see the world is darkening, and that these principalities and powers are influencing the culture around us in very disturbing ways, and so we want to stop it, but again, We need to remember that our mission is to witness one-on-one, to change hearts through sharing the gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and not by imposing biblical theology and biblical morality on unbelievers. That doesn't change any hearts. That does not win anybody to Jesus Christ. And it is, in fact, at its most extreme, it is a Christianized jihad. I like the way you put that. Now, I'm looking at Genesis 1.28, where it says, And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Well, the environmentalists are really unhappy with Bible-believing Christians. They hold that the biblical belief that God assigned man to rule over the earth and to have dominion has caused the exploitation and misuse of the planet. Do you think the dominionists are particularly guilty on this point, or maybe evangelicals, just that we're careless and we throw trash out the window? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we're all guilty of that to an extent, but I think all of us, if we're rational thinkers, we want to leave the world cleaner and better for our children and grandchildren and those who came before. God, when he granted us dominion, essentially set us up as caretakers of this creation. And so as Christians looking at this beautiful planet that God entrusted to us, How could we want to exploit it and damage it and leave it scarred and 
polluted for future generations. I think that's just a projection, really. And again, I think this gets back to the uh, principalities and powers behind those that have rejected the authority of God. The angelic realm, the fallen angels, I think they're upset that God created this planet and gave us dominion over it, and they wanted to take dominion away from us, which is behind the rebellions that we read about in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 6, the intrusion of the fallen sons of God who commingled with humanity, and then the fallen angels who were placed in positions of responsibility over the earth. After the Tower of Babel incident, we read about that in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When God divided the nations, he numbered them according to the number of the sons of God. These are talking about angels that God placed as administrators over the earth, but they chose to set themselves up as gods and have been condemned. Psalm 82 is a courtroom scene where God condemns them to death for ruling unjustly. I think this aspect of God granting dominion to humanity, setting us up as caretakers, his moral agents and representatives on earth, his imagers, if you will, is what has led to this long supernatural war by the fallen realm to try to take it away from us. Right. It's interesting to me how environmentalist behaviors echo religious behaviors. They have their religious rituals. For example, there's a holy day. They call it Earth Day. There are food taboos. Instead of eating fish on Friday or avoiding pork, environmentalists now push organic foods. There's no prayer, but there are self-sacrificing rituals, such as recycling paper. And of course, environmentalism is a proselytizing evangelistic religion. Skeptics are not those who are unconvinced by the evidence. Rather, they are sinners. So we've got to be very careful, as you point out, that we have a gospel mandate. We are to preach Christ. We are to preach the whole counsel of God. We're to speak about spiritual warfare because the demons and Satan himself does not want people to have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I think one of the things that we see with dominionism, as you point out, they're pointing to the wrong thing. They have a non-gospel view of their commission and their purpose. That's true, and I think they misinterpret Genesis 1.28. When we were given dominion over the earth, it is as caretakers of this beautiful Mm. creation that God established for us and placed us into. It was not to rule over other humans. It was to serve as his image bearers, his moral agents on earth not to rule the earth as a sort of theocracy in his stead. And that is what the Dominion movement is about. They actually teach in some sectors of this movement that we have seen the restoration of the first century offices of apostle and the apostles with all of the authority of the first century apostles, which is, again, a bit disturbing because the apostles are the ones who wrote down the words of the New Testament, which gives us everything we know about biblical Christianity and Christian theology. Well, friends, we are visiting with Derek Gilbert, talking about the book Blood on the Altar, and certainly as the world races toward its momentous end times encounter between good and evil, known in the Bible as Armageddon, There is a deepening antagonism developing worldwide against conservative Christians. And actually, some conservative Christians are fighting against some conservative Christians. This is a really exciting book. Derek, thank you so much for being on the show. Larry, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. 
In Blood on the Altar, the coming war between Christian versus Christian, leading national and international researchers, scholars, authors, and speakers share urgent information and specialized knowledge about this coming war and what you can do to prepare for it. Contributors to this book include Tom Horn, Larry Spargimino, Chuck Missler, Chris Putnam, Michael Lake, Sharon Gilbert, Derek Gilbert, Paul McGuire, Douglas Krieger, Douglas Woodward, and Terry James. Order your copy of Blood on the Altar today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can order Blood on the Altar book online, swrc.com. Staff Evangelist James Collins comes now with a moment of prophecy where he looks at the mystery of Enoch and Methuselah. Here is a question to ask your biblically literate friends. If Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible, how could he die before his father? Let me give you that question again. If Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible, how could he die before his father? That's a real head-scratcher to most people. That's because most people forget who Methuselah's father was. If Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible, how could he die before his father? Well, you see, Methuselah's father was Enoch. Enoch did not die. No, Enoch did not die, but instead was caught up directly to heaven. In Genesis 5.24, we read, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch, who is one of the most fascinating characters in the Old Testament, was translated. He was raptured. You see, the flood of Noah did not come by surprise. It had been preached for four generations But something strange happened when Enoch was 65 years old. When Enoch was 65, he had a son. Now remember, the Bible says that Enoch walked with God. In other words, he was very, very close to God. He was so close to God that Enoch was given a prophecy of the coming great flood. Apparently, God told Enoch, as long as his son was alive, the judgment of the flood would be withheld. But as soon as he died, the judgment of the flood would come upon the world. So Enoch named his son to reflect this prophecy. The name Methuselah comes from two root words, muth, a word that means death, and from the word shalak, which means to bring or to send forth. So the name Methuselah means his death shall bring. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Can you imagine raising that kid? Every time Methuselah caught a cold, the entire neighborhood must have panicked. But the prophecy came true. In the year that Methuselah died, the flood came. The Bible says that Methuselah was 187 years old when he had Lamech, and he lived 782 more years. Lamech had Noah when he was 182 years old, The flood came in Noah's 600th year. 187 plus 182 plus 600 equals 969, the year that Methuselah died. 
Now, Methuselah was the oldest person mentioned in the Bible. He lived to be 969 years old. In Genesis chapter 5, we read that Methuselah was listed as a descendant of Adam who also lived nearly a millennium. Methuselah and Adam are not the only people mentioned in the Bible who lived over 900 years. Adam lived to be 930 years old. Adam's son, Seth, lived to be 912 years old. Seth's son, Enos, lived to be 905 years old. Methuselah's grandfather, Jared, lived to be 962 years old. And Methuselah's grandson, Noah, he lived to be 950. Here is something else interesting about Methuselah. Even though Methuselah lived 693 years after Adam, it is likely that they knew each other since Adam lived for another 237 years after Methuselah was born. Yes, Methuselah lived longer than anyone else. He lived until he was 969 years old. That is where we get the expression that something or someone is as old as Methuselah. Now, why do you think God allowed Methuselah to live so long? Well, remember that his name meant his death shall bring. When he died, his death brought the judgment of the flood. So his life was, in effect, a symbol of God's mercy in putting off the coming judgment of the flood. It is therefore fitting that Methuselah's lifetime is the oldest in the Bible because his long life symbolized the extreme extensiveness of God's mercy. So we have Enoch, who was saved from the judgment of the flood when God raptured him, and we have his son Methuselah, who was saved from the judgment of the flood by death. Enoch is a picture of the church who will be saved from the tribulation in the rapture. And Methuselah is a picture of believers who died in Christ before the tribulation. Both are saved from God's wrath. That is the mystery of Enoch and Methuselah. But just as certain as the flood of Noah came upon this earth, the terrible seven-year tribulation period will come. You can count on it. We are currently living in an age of grace, but God's grace has its limits. So how can you be saved from the wrath to come? In Genesis 6, God gave Noah details on how to build the ark. One of God's specific instructions for Noah was to build a door in the side of the ark. Noah and his family entered that door to be saved from the flood. Everyone outside of the ark, well, they perished. Noah's family entered the door of the ark to escape the physical destruction of the flood. God has provided another door to save people from the coming eternal judgment. In John 10:7, Jesus Christ said, I am the door. Jesus is the door through which we must enter to be saved from our sin. Just like there was one way to get saved from the flood through the door of the ark, there is only one way to get saved from hell today, through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that you get on the ark with me. Come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Do it now before the door closes forever. This is James Collins reminding you that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Our featured resource today is the book, Blood on the Altar. This book tells of the coming war of Christian versus Christian. Order your copy of Blood on the Altar today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. 
1-800-242-1144. You can order online swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Tomorrow, we have an exciting announcement, a debut of a brand new resource, and some very special guests. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners just like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Dot com.